Thank you, choir, orchestra, Sarah. I love the music in our church. I sit up here and have the best time when the college band sings and the youth students sing. I was even watching Bob McAllister over there. He was trying to keep he was trying to keep time with what we were just doing, and he was about three beats off, but he was trying. I, I, I'm blessed too, Bob. I was talking with the uh, college students before, and I said, uh, you, need a, you need somebody to play something in the band today. They said, what do you play? I said, I play the spoons. <laughs> and they said, well, good, because the spoon player called in and said he was sick today, so we're going to need you. <laughs> I forgot my spoons. Well, at any rate, we're going to continue today looking at uh, the miracles of Jesus. We began by looking at the first miracle, which was the turning of the water into wine. Last week, it was the healing of the nobleman's son. And today, we're going to look at the healing of the paralytic. Now, before we get to our text, let me give you a little bit of background information. Jesus had been on a preaching tour throughout Galilee he returned to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Many of you have been there. You've seen the ruins that are there, beautiful little area, but that is where it is located. Jesus, early in his ministry, moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. And that is where we see the paralytic who is healed. Jesus stayed in the home of Simon Peter in Capernaum. The, uh, the, the house of Simon Peter has been identified by archaeologists and now there is a Catholic church that is built over it. You still see the ruins and you can go into the Catholic church, look through the floor and you can see the house that has been identified there. So this is where this miracle took place. Take your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. And when he had come back to Capernaum, Several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to move him, uh, to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. But there were some of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming, who can forgive sins but God alone. And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise and take up your pallet and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your pallet, and go home. And he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out in the sight of all, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. When I read the story, the part that stands out in my mind is that sentence, We have never seen anything like this. 
What is it that was so significant that they would say, we have never seen anything like this? It reminds me of growing up and where I grew up. If there, there was something extraordinary, if there was something unbelievable that happened, someone would normally say, I've been to three rodeos and a goat roping and I've never seen anything like this. Well, that's sort of what we have here. They have never seen anything like this. What was it? What was it that they had never seen before? Well, I don't know. Maybe it was uh, they had never seen such compassion of these friends. Verse number three, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. The word paralytic means dried up or paralyzed. Maybe he had a stroke. We don't know what it was. But we know here was a man who was not able to get to Jesus because of his condition. He was helpless. He could not get to Christ on his own strength. We looked at the story not long ago about the, um, the man who was at the pool of Bethesda. He had been there for 38 years. And according to John, an angel would come stir up the water. The first one in would be healed. Jesus came by and said, do you wish to get well? And the man said, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus, I, I, I don't have the power to get into the water in order to be healed. I am, I am helpless. Did you know that is a good picture of a person who does not know Jesus Christ? We want people to be saved. We want them to know the Lord. We want them to be born again. But folks, someone has to share the gospel with them. They're not able to get there on their own. Romans chapter 10 verse 14 says, How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How does someone believe in Jesus when they have not heard of Jesus? And how shall they hear without a preacher? You see, what he is saying to us in that passage of Scripture is how can someone believe in Christ when they've never heard of him? Someone has to share the gospel with people, the good news with people. When they hear the good news, that is the seed of God planted in them, the Holy Spirit then is able to use that seed to draw that person to faith in Christ. So here's a man who was helpless, according to the Bible. He could not come to Jesus on his own. And I see these four friends who cooperated to bring him there. It says again, verse 3, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. They cooperated together. These men wanted their friend to come to Jesus. And so they worked together to get him there. They cooperated. Paul understood that in a spiritual sense in which he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. We would love to see this world come to know Jesus, would we? We would love to see people saved. If that is going to happen, then we need to work together. Because God has given us different gifts. The Apostle Paul said, for the body is not one member but many. Now we look at this body in the comparison. There's one body. It has hands to pick up things, feet to walk, an ear to hear, eyes to see mouth to speak but there's one body that's what Paul said about us we have different gifts 
that God uses. And when we work together, then we're able to reach people for Christ when we reach work together with the gifts that God has given to us. In fact, I was thinking about that even in our staff, uh, gifted differently, and that's a wonderful thing because the church is ministered to that way. I look at Richard. Richard uh, has the gift of compassion. That's very important in reaching people because it has been said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So we have to have that spirit of compassion. And Richard has that. Others do as well. But Richard has that spirit of compassion. Steve has a gift of evangelism. Seldom ever is there a Sunday in which he has not led someone to the Lord or reached out to someone and they come forward during the service because he has that gift. And then Wes has, has the gift of discipleship. Whenever a person does come into the church, then Wes is very good to take that person and put them in a Sunday school class or in some small group so they can begin to grow. But do you see how, how the different gifts work together to reach people and to minister to people? Then we have the Pooh Boys. Philly Pooh and Scotty Pooh, I don't know what their gift is. I'm just teasing. They're more gifted than the rest of us combined. But, but the thing that is beautiful to me is when I, when I watch our staff and I see that God has gifted each one differently, and yet when we work together, we put God's gifts together and work, then we see the Lord do wonderful things. I also noticed that not only did these four men cooperate together, but they were also determined, which is important, because there are always obstacles to keep people from the Lord. Now look at verse number four. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Now then in this case, it was the crowd that separated this man who had a need from the Lord. They could not get the man to Jesus because of the crowd, and oftentimes it is the crowd that keeps people from the Lord. For instance, Zacchaeus wanted to see the Lord, but there was a crowd that separated him from the Lord. That's the reason he climbed up into a sycamore tree so he could see the Lord and the Lord saw him there. But it was the crowd that separated him. There's the story about the woman who had an issue of blood. And she thought to herself, if I can just get to Jesus, if I can touch the hem of his garment, then I will be made well. But there was a crowd that separated her from Jesus. I would guess that there are some of you and the Holy Spirit deals in your heart and draws you to Christ, but the crowd intimidates you. And you're not willing to make a commitment to Christ because the crowd stands between you and the Lord and you're intimidated by the crowd. Sometimes it's the crowd. Sometimes it's your friends, it's your peers that stand between you and the Lord. The, the, the scripture tells the story of, of Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was a blind beggar who sat outside Jericho and, and would beg. One day Jesus went by and he had heard about Jesus. He was familiar with him. So when he heard that it was Jesus coming by, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the Bible says in Mark chapter 10, verse 48, and many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more. His friends were there, said, Bartimaeus, knock it off. Be quiet, you're embarrassing yourself, you're embarrassing us, be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me because he believed that Jesus could heal him. He believed that Jesus could give him sight and he would not allow his friends to stand between him and Jesus. Sometimes it's our friends. Sometimes it's our peers that keep us from Christ. Sometimes it is religion. I believe that was true with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, before he became the Apostle Paul, was a religious man. When he persecuted the believers, it was to honor his religion. He believed that he was doing the service of God, but his religion was keeping him from Jesus. There are always obstacles, folks. There are always obstacles standing between you and Jesus to come to salvation, to be responsive or obedient to the Lord. There are always obstacles that have to be overcome. Look at verse number four. And being unable to get him, get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. That one verse lets me know that these men were not Baptists. Because this project would not have gotten out of committee until they knew who was going to pay for the roof. <laughs> they are destroying a roof. Somebody's going to have to pay for it. Who's going to pay for it? There are always obstacles to overcome. And as I look at these men, they labored to bring their friend. You see, because compassion is not just feeling. Compassion is also doing. It is not real compassion just to feel for someone who is hurting. If compassion is legitimate, if compassion is real, then it does something. When I look at these men, they had compassion for him, so they carried him to Jesus and they tore off the roof to take him to Jesus. They worked. If we're going to reach our community for Christ, if we're going to reach students for Christ, if we're going to reach our world for Christ, then we have to work. There's no shortcut. Some years ago in my ministry, I tried to make everything convenient. I thought if we put it on a good night or we do this or that, we make it convenient, then they'll participate. We will not reach the world for Christ through convenience. It is going to take work. It is going to take sacrifice. So maybe it was they had never seen such compassion. Maybe it was they had never seen such faith. The Bible says in verse 5, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Maybe they'd never seen that kind of faith, and that was the reason. Faith is a little bit ambiguous to us. I think the best definition of faith is found in Hebrews 11.1 1, that says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The word assurance in the King James Version is translated substance. I, I personally prefer that because I think that it depicts more what faith is. Substance. Faith is substance. Faith is assurance. Faith is substance. Sub, something beneath us. 
stance on which I can stand. Faith is substance. It's something beneath me on which I can stand. Vine says it has the meaning of confidence. So these friends stood on the belief that Jesus could heal the paralytic. Conviction means the evidence that things not seen are true. The conviction, faith is assurance, faith is conviction. The evidence that things not seen are true. Sherwood Eddy wrote, faith is not trying to believe something regardless of the evidence. Faith is daring to do something regardless of the consequences. Now faith is defined, but if it's biblical faith, it has to be demonstrated. There are people who talk about their faith. I have faith and so forth. Now if it's real faith, if it's biblical faith, then it has to be demonstrated. The Bible says in James 2.17, Even so faith if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. I can believe something, but if that's as far as it goes, that's just theory, it's not real. For instance, let's say that I need to go to New York or you need to go to New York. And so you put it on your calendar. You go to the airport, you get a ticket. You have a schedule for your flight but you still have to get on the plane. See, that's when faith becomes real. I believe this thing can fly. If you believe that it can fly, then you get on the plane to go to New York. These friends believed in Jesus, therefore they brought the paralytic to Jesus. See, it wasn't just theory with them. They believed that Jesus could heal him, thus they brought him to Jesus. Faith is demonstrated. Noah believed the word of God, so he what? He built an ark. It was because he believed the word of God that he built the ark. Joshua believed the promise of God, so he marched around the city of Jericho waiting for it to fall. What we do is evidence of what we believe. These men had faith that Jesus could heal him, thus they brought him to Jesus. Maybe it was they had never seen such opposition. Maybe it was faith. Maybe what they're referring to is the opposition. Look at verse number 6. But there were some of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? There is always opposition standing in the way of someone coming to Christ, and oftentimes it is religion. And here the opposition came from the religious leaders, the scribes. Vine says they were ambitious of honor, which they demanded especially from their pupils. Now these are the religious people standing in the way. Did you notice that? It's interesting to me that it says they were sitting there. Well, why could this man not get in to see Jesus, the paralytic? Why could he not get in to see Jesus? Because there was a crowd standing in the way. They couldn't even get in. And yet these religious leaders had gotten there early enough so they could get a seat. And they're sitting there. They're not sitting there to learn. They're not sitting there to worship. 
They got there early and they are sitting there to criticize. And they criticized the message in verse number 7. Why does this man speak that way? They criticized the message. They criticized the method. He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You ought not be saying that. That's, that's the wrong thing. That's the wrong way. It reminds me, and I'm sure that I've, I've told the story before, but when Dwight L. Moody would issue an invitation when he would preach, he'd give an invitation for people to respond to Christ. There was a critic came up to him after the service uh, on one occasion and said to him, I, I don't like your method of uh, extending that invitation. And Moody says, I don't particularly like it myself. He said, what method do you use? He said, well, I don't have a method. And Moody said, well, then I like mine better than yours. <laughs> How many times do we keep people from Christ, even as the church, because someone is not doing it exactly the way we think? They, they were there sitting there to criticize. They criticized the message, they criticized the method, but they were there to criticize. And these, after all, were reasonable people. It says in verse number 6, but there were some of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their heart. Oh, this doesn't make any sense. They were reasoning within their hearts. You know, the, those who reject the Lord oftentimes use reason as the reason. They were reasoning in their hearts why this wasn't right, why, why, why it couldn't be the way to get things done. They were reasonable. Let me ask you, how do you deal with opposition? When there's opposition, you're trying to reach someone for Christ, you're trying to serve the Lord, and there's criticism. How do you deal with opposition when you're trying to serve the Lord? Well, look at what Jesus did in verse number 8. And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or arise, take up your pallet and walk. In other words, Jesus just ignored them. I mean, here, here he is about to, this man has been brought to him. He is paralyzed. They are criticizing the way Jesus is doing it, and he ignores them. He just goes on and heals a man. Billy Graham said, I make it a policy never to answer critics, but to go on in the way I know is God's will. You see, we have to be more attuned to the voice of God than the voice of critics, because there's always opposition. Maybe that's what they hadn't seen before. Or maybe they had never seen such power. Now, in verse number 11, I say to you, arise, take up your pallet, and go home. Hebert said, this is a threefold command directed to the paralytic, which involves faith, arise. Jesus said to a man who was paralyzed, arise. Well, that's going to take a little bit of faith. I mean, the man could have said, I arise, that's the reason I'm here. I can't arise, I'm paralyzed. Arise, required faith. Heber said, take up your pallet, demands his prompt obedience. Arise, take up your pallet, and go home. He would be a standing witness there to Jesus' authority to forgive sins. So Jesus said to the man, arise, take up your pallet, go home. Faith, obedience, witness. Look at the power in verse number 12. 
And he arose and immediately took up the pallet and went out in the sight of all. Jesus gave the command, and when Jesus gives the command, he gives the power to fulfill the command. My friend, when the Lord, when the Lord gives you something to do, he gives you the power to do it. When the Lord calls a church to a task, he enables the church to fulfill the task. We see the power, and then we see the response. Verse number 12 continues, So that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. How did they respond? They were amazed. You know, Jesus is amazing, is he not? He really is amazing. In his healing ministry, Matthew chapter 12 says, Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. He healed him. So the dumb man spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed. The healing power of the Lord is amazing. When he healed the paralytic, when he healed the son of the royal officials, amazing. It's amazing what God does. His teaching is amazing. In Matthew 19, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished or amazed. So the Bible says, how did the, how did the crowd respond to this? They were amazed. And they glorified God because only God could do such amazing things. God. Don't you want your life to be such that it is so amazing that people look at your life and say, only God could do that. Only God could do that. They glorified God and they said, we've never seen anything like this. I was thinking about that in these terms. We've never seen anything like that. What has the world seen? Well, they've seen our religion They've seen our programs. We have good programs. And the world has seen our programs. The world has seen our worship, the worship of the church when we come together, when other churches come together. Oftentimes there is nothing to, that manifests the presence of the Lord there. They've seen that. They've seen sinful shepherds being less than they should be, sinful people being less than they should be. But the desire of my heart, and I believe the desire of your heart, is that when they see, they see Jesus. When the world looks at me, when the world looks at you, when the world looks at First Baptist, that they see Jesus, where lives have been changed. And I know the story of so many of you, how the Lord changed your life. Only God could do that. Only God could do that. When the world sees us, that they see lives that have been changed, they see Christians who care. They don't just talk about caring, but they really care. They see people who love their enemies, even when they're not loved back. So let me close this way. When the world looks at you, what do they see that is amazing? When the world sees you, 
what do they see that is amazing? Is it your compassion? Is it your faith? Is it the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit? Because I believe this, when the world looks at you, when the world looks at me and sees Jesus, they will be drawn to Jesus. If they look at me and see me, if they look at me and see religion, they will not. But if they look at me, if they look at you and they see Jesus, they'll be drawn to Jesus. What does the world see when they look at you? That is amazing. Our Father, I pray that our lives might be amazing because they are a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray today that you would move in our midst, that you would speak to the hearts of those who are here, those who have never come to know Christ. They've been kept away for one reason or another. I pray that today they will overcome those obstacles to come to Jesus. I pray, Father, that we might join together as brothers and sisters in Christ different and gifted differently to share the gospel with our world. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand and the choir's going to sing. If you're here without the Lord, I encourage you to come and trust Him today. Overcome whatever obstacle stands between you and Him. Come. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open. Stand with me, please. As we stand, they sing, you come, I'll greet you, should do. Jesus. 